Hello. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My guest today is Dr. Michael Buddy, who was a political scientist at DePaul University. As a devout Roman Catholic, his spiritual journey has led him to devote his life and work to understanding politics, governance, and governments, and especially Christianity's and the church's relationship to these things. If I understand what I have read in his writings, the arc of Mike's efforts is to discern and to help us to discern what it means for us as Christians and in our lives together as the church, eagerly and lovingly to be devoted and obedient fully to God as experienced in Jesus. This means that we in our lives together as the church are to be like Clarence Jordan's demonstration plot of God's coming kingdom. In doing so, one of our key tasks is to shape one another into the kind of people capable of such eager, loving, devoted, and obedient demonstration. These tasks and goals make us a unique people with a unique relationship to every dimension of our experiences. Exploring the implications of this uniqueness especially as it brings us into relationship with our cultures, our economies, our nations and their agendas, responsibilities and demands, and global affairs, has been the focus of Mike's attention. Mike provides a prophetic voice that enables the church to see itself in its compromises, but also to see its possibilities as those capable of being followers of Jesus. On my website, I will give you the formal information about Mike, about his education, the books he's written, and the work he has done. But I think the best way to introduce Mike is to tell you a couple of stories that come from his Ecclesia Project friends. You will recognize both of these friends from my interview with the Ecclesia Project. Chi-Ming Chen said that Mike led a retreat for Grace Fellowship Community Church, which was Chi-Ming's previous church in San Francisco several years back. Chi-Ming remembers two things from the retreat. The first was the ease with which Mike joked with Chi-Ming's pastor, who had at that point recently had surgery for an aggressive brain cancer. The friendship between the two men was evidence, as was the shared hope of the resurrection. The other thing was that, in the midst of a truly insightful Bible study that got to the root of the gospel, Mike said offhandedly, It's not like that I'm radical. I'm a college professor who drives a minivan. How radical is that? To Chi Ming, that pairing really epitomized Mike. Really clear gospel vision and really down-to-earth humble presence. The second story comes from Kyle Childress. Kyle said that at one of their Ecclesia Project gatherings in Chicago, Mike and he were in a crowded bar with lots of locals. Mike is imposing with his full beard, long hair, and big, booming, working-class Chicago accent. But his accent got them attentive service. A few years later, Mike was in Texas with Kyle. And Kyle said to Mike, If a cop pulls us over for any reason, you keep your mouth shut. Your accent will get us arrested. So with these stories, I introduce to you Mike Buddy. Well, welcome, Mike. Thank you for being with me. David, happy to join you. 
Well, we began by letting you kind of describe your own spiritual journey, uh, especially as that has led you to a career of the study of political science and the teaching of political science. Well, I grew up in a uh, prison town in the industrial Midwest. I grew up in Joliet, Illinois. The first time I saw the movie The Blues Brothers, I thought it was a documentary. Um, <laughs> and uh, I uh, grew up in a, a white Catholic family in a town that had uh, lots of churches, lots of bars, and no bookstores. Uh, kind of a typical sort of American Christianity thing, money, God, and country all in the right places and all, all parts of that work seamlessly. Um, I guess I was always a little dissatisfied with what seemed to be the, the gap between the, the Jesus I read about in the New Testament and the kind of things I saw in the churches around me rather than leave like a lot of my colleagues and people who were my age did, um, I was more suspicious. I figured there had to be something better than what I was seeing, but they were just keeping the good stuff from me. So I was determined to try to figure out what that might be. Um, and then I guess in a used bookstore, probably when I was about 15 or 16, I found a book called No Bars to Manhood by the Jesuit priest, Daniel Berrigan. Uh, and it talked about the prophets had talked about Paul, so on, in a very contemporary context, in, in this case, during the Vietnam War. And this I understood. This made sense to me. The, the message there was that if you take this Jesus person seriously, you're liable to get in trouble. So that opened doors to me, that opened doors to those parts of the Christian heritage that I hadn't been exposed to before. The Anabaptist traditions, the reformers, the 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 Catholic worker movement in places like the United States. And it was those kinds of concerns that led me into being more interested in the connections between uh, the church and questions of power and the vulnerable, both domestically and around the world. Uh, so I stumbled into a career in political science where much of what I did was considered theology. Uh, I sort of kicked around between Christian theology and social, social theory. In fact, early in my career, I would have uh, things I'd written be sent to a social science journal who would send them back and say, this is very nice, but we don't publish theology. And then I'd send the same piece to a theological journal and they'd say, well, this might be interesting, but we don't do social science. And so, so you fill in the gap. Yeah. And, you know, it's probably an appropriate place for, for a misfit like me. And, uh, <laughs> so I've, for about 30 years now, I've sort of lived in those gaps and focused on that part of Christian thought, which is called ecclesiology, which refers to what it means to be church, um, both as a, descriptive and as an aspirational reality. And, uh, that's, that's allowed me to have friends and dialogue partners from all over the world, from all different branches of the Christian movement and family. And um, I know I'm a better scholar for it, and I hope I'm a better person too. Well, who would you say kind of has shaped you as far as your thinking? Who have been the ones that have been most influential in, in shaping your thoughts? 
Well, I think clearly the uh, some of the figures of the so-called Catholic left during the 1960s and 70s, Daniel and Philip Berrigan, had a large influence on me. They were they were of the mind that uh, when 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 Jesus says Christians aren't supposed to kill, we're supposed to take him at his word. We're not supposed to equivocate and and hem that in and dilute that. And so that being a Christian means that you stand against those who would use violence to have their way in the world. Um, and so that they had a significant influence on me, both in terms of eventually persuading me that no matter how much I wanted otherwise, that being a, being a Christian and being an enthusiast for, for violence were, were probably incompatible roles. Uh, it wasn't something I came to quickly or easily but it became an unavoidable sort of conclusion after many years. Um, I was familiar with Sojourners and Jim Wallace in their very early times, almost back when they were the post-American in Chicago before they moved to Washington and became Sojourners. Um, So I was influenced by a lot of people in the evangelical sort of reform movements of the 70s and 80s. Um, And those kinds of doors opened up into so many different places so that I was able to learn from and with people engaged in liberation theology as a structured way of inhabiting the world and looking at the gospel through the eyes of the poor and those who are on the bottom of the social, social structure that, uh, that made that, that made the scriptures come alive to me in ways that might not have otherwise been the case. Um, and so since then, you know, I've been, I've been lucky. I've been able to learn from and steal ideas from people across the, across the theological landscape. And I've been, I've been grateful for that ever since. Well, you um, uh, seem to share uh, with folks like Stanley Howard Wass and uh, uh, John Howard Yoder, the conviction that um, and ever since Constantine, um, various empires and states uh, have tried to um, partner, uh, elicit the church as an ally uh, in its own agenda. And that there's kind of two dimensions to that, the political and the economic. Um, and so why don't we kind of talk about each of those? dimensions a little bit separately and start with the political uh how is it that the church uh has been a partner with complicit with uh the state in relationship to uh the notion of its political agendas and and i guess the concept of citizenship you bring that up i think one of the the interesting things is how um in the first couple centuries of the christian era the there was a, a broad consensus uh, that, you know, being a, being a Christian imposed a certain way of life and a certain way of inhabiting the world that didn't necessarily mean you were out trying to overthrow the empire, but that you weren't about sort of doing the empire's business. Um, and that took lots of forms. There were certain professions you couldn't pursue as a Christian in the early centuries. You couldn't be a silversmith, for example, because that was 
a, tr- a profession tied exclusively to idolatrous religious practices as the Christians saw them. Uh, you couldn't be a soldier because Christians weren't supposed to kill people. Um, and so the accommodation that eventually emerged between Christianity and first the Roman Empire and then later ones came with a relaxation of those assumptions. Um, I think the most important one was the Christian prohibition on on lethal force. Uh, Clearly, that was the major stumbling block between kind of a rapprochement between the church and various empires. Empires, political authorities, can't run without the ability to kill people. They construct order, they construct regularity by being able to kill people for various reasons, for various for for various rule-based considerations. Um, as Christianity became closer to imperial power, those restrictions started to change in the Christian community. Uh, Yoder talks about how the questions started to shift subtly over time, rather than asking, what does Jesus want from us or what does God want from us? The question became, what's reasonable to ask of the emperor? And clearly you can't ask the emperor not to kill people because that's what they do. It's in the job description. So how do we accommodate that? And how do we, how do we compromise in a way that will allow those things to sort of coexist and eventually become mutually supportive? So the political question becomes one in which the distinctiveness of the church and the distinctiveness of Christianity becomes absorbed into the imperial category of citizen in which the health and survival of the empire or the regime becomes the highest good. And all things then have to be recalibrated to make that possible. As far as the economic part of things goes, that that plays out differently in different parts of the world, depending on the era that one talks about. Um, I think in the contemporary era, the, uh, the process by which Christianity accommodated itself to capitalism is an uneven one and plays out differently in different parts of the world, in different traditions and so on. Um, but along the way, the, the, the violence intrinsic to creating a system in which the market is dominant as the social center of life. Um, people lost sight of the fact that that was not a natural evolution that involved lots of original and ongoing violence. People had to be stripped of the means of subsistence, whether that was their land or their their flocks, their grazing areas and so on, and then forced into working where their only means of survival is wages for somebody else. Um, the types of inequality, the types of, the types of subordination that required um, early on, you know, the church recognized that was clearly inappropriate. And that was clearly, you know, at odds with the kinds of reciprocity and mutuality that ought to obtain uh, in a Christian view of the world. But again, you know, a, a more accommodating spirit prevailed with 
the critique of economics being relegated then to those who were thought to have a special calling for it or religious orders or, or dissident kinds of strains that would, were thought to be marginal and not really worth listening to. We talk about the formative nature of states and empires, and particularly the formative uh, nature of both the political and the economic uh, dimensions. And, and I guess you talk about, as I understand it, uh, almost like a, a, a state narrative uh, that they develop uh, that kind of justifies this formative process. Oh, sure. Um, in almost every school across the United States, for example, children start the day with the Pledge of Allegiance. Why? There's no evidence that it, cre- that it contributes to increased ability in reading, writing, or arithmetic. Uh, it's there as a socialization exercise to inculcate in kids, as, the, as has been for their parents and has reinforced in a whole variety of other practices across the life spectrum, the idea that love of country is, is paramount, that that's the highest good. Um, and that one's country is deserving of not only love, but sacrifice, including the sacrifice of any moral strictures that might impede your willingness to kill for it or die for it. Um, And I think that's one of the lessons that the churches have started to learn again in different places is that there's nothing natural about being an American or a Frenchman or a Zambian or, or a Brazilian. These are all identities that we learn. We, we, we learn what it means to be a, a member of a given political community or a given nation. And we're taught and sort of socialized into all the roles and responsibilities that go into that. Some of those are good. Some of those are matters of indifference. Some are positively in conflict with the uh, call of call of Jesus and the uh, Christian conviction that everyone is made in the image and likeness of God. The barriers between countries, the barriers between enemies that nation states erect, sustain, and in some ways even require for their ongoing legitimacy, none of those should be determinative for Christians, yet here we are. So what you see in many places is that there's a call or a movement toward trying to understand where and how the process of forming Christians, which again is nothing that's intrinsic or to which one is inherently born into, how those processes have to be revitalized because in many ways they're at cross purposes with the formation that nationalism imposes through its rituals, through its obligations, through its practices. So, you know, uh, it's tough to, it's tough to square the Sermon on the Mount with the requisites of my country, right or wrong. It's tough to, it's tough to talk about turning the other cheek in a world in which political vengeance is a positive virtue in many circumstances. So, you know, trying to retell the story both of one's political community and then retelling the story of what it might mean to be a disciple of Jesus 
is to accept the fact that those stories in many regards are going to be at cross purposes with one another. And for Christians, the choice becomes, as it's always been, uh, to whom do we belong? Where does our first and ultimate allegiance lie? Is it to Caesar or is it to God? So, yeah, those are those are powerful, ongoing sorts of dynamics that we are so used to that we don't give them a second thought. Well, there's a quote that you have in um, your Christianity Incorporated um, about um, how the church kind of becomes complicit uh, with the state uh, in the image of chaplaincy. And uh, let me let me read that. It says, um, this is on page 10. Uh, in addition to enabling people to work within the existing order more efficiently, Christianity must also boost people emotionally and psychologically during stressful times and must enable them to be good citizens, employees, consumers, patriots, and family members. Indeed, for Christianity to be relevant today, it must do for the whole society what chaplains do in the armed forces meet spiritual needs and personal crises, provide legitimation and explanation for the way things are, and generate loyalties to the collective and its purposes. The first thing to note is that I'm not criticizing real chaplains. I mean, chaplains right. in hospitals, chaplains in institutions right. do, good, do good and important work. I think the, the reason that I use the metaphor of chaplaincy is to talk about kind of larger structural relationships that I think are, are harmful to a, a notion of church that's worth inhabiting. Um, and what I'm trying to get at with that line of thinking is the extent to which to stay relevant, to be seen as a, a partner in society, so much of Christianity has sought to to sort of repackage and reposition itself as being of therapeutic benefit to society. You know, if you, you know, if you're a member of a church, you'll have a happier marriage. Your kids won't be screwed up. You'll, you know, your, your, your income levels will be, will be better because you'll have given up all sorts of bad personal habits and so on. You'll be a better citizen because you'll be, you know, upstanding and so on. Uh, in the workplace, there's just an explosion of quasi-religious sorts of, you know, employee assistance programs that don't really change the power relationships on the job, but they're to help you adjust to them. How do you feel better about yourself? How do you, you know, how do you cope with stress without having to turn to drugs or alcohol or something else? Um, and how can you be a more productive employee and smile at the same time? And I think those are those are pernicious. I think those are just poisonous uh, to the to the church because they they put Christianity in the position of not asking questions about the rules of the game, about the whether or not it's legitimate that things be structured the way they are. We're just supposed to take it and accept it and help people, as Rousseau once said. Know, to help people love their chains. And I think that's really, it's a, that's an 
illegitimate dilution of Christianity, and it's kind of a it's it's kind of a desperation move to to prove relevance in a society that's proven that it really only may need Christianity as kind of a kind of a cheap therapy for people who are legitimately stressed and and overwhelmed by whether it's racism or being crushed economically or being marginalized for any one of a number of different different reasons or from a different variety of different factors. Um, you also kind of talk about the importance of um, us providing a counter narrative uh, that uh, is a more truthful narrative. Uh, and you use the United States particularly as an example of that. Uh, in your, in which we'll talk about a little bit later in your uh, upcoming book. Um, but yeah, talk about that, the importance of that counter narrative. Well, I think our mutual friend Stanley Hauerwas put it well years ago when he talked about how if you, you know, if you read it in a way that maybe it was intended, you can see that, you know, the New Testament lays out a a story that is absolutely full of danger. Being a Christian is a dangerous proposition in the eyes of the world. It's like an adventure story, except we believe we know the answer at the end. Um, but there's no element of danger in the story that most people have about Christianity. It looks tame and accommodating or, you know, censorious and just a nanny that just sort of turns its nose up at anything in the world and, you know, is happy to just sort of be inoffensive on a good day if it's when it's not out sort of on a moralistic crusade. Um, the stakes are cosmic when you look at it, at the, the story of Christianity from the, from the perspective of the eschaton, from where God is taking all, all of this, the, the ultimate kind of aspiration of creation, the culmination and the healing of heaven and earth. And the idea that the church would be part of that seems outrageous given what we think the church is. Um, and again, the church doesn't do it, but it's got a piece of the puzzle. It's got a role to play. Uh, that's a whole different story than the idea of Christianity as being about nothing more than potluck suppers and voting for the Republican Party. And I think to the extent that, you know, uh, Christians learn to reread their own history, to reread the story of exemplars of faith in different times and places, we can start to recapture some of this notion and some of this lived reality that if you take this stuff seriously, they're going to want to kill you. They're not going to let you get away with saying, well, no, you know, not only shouldn't Christians kill each other, maybe they shouldn't kill anybody. Maybe the kinds of things that it are involved in, trying to be a pilgrim people and trying to be distinctive aren't about elitism, but it's about rejecting some of the rules and some of the barriers that uh, political and economic systems just presuppose as natural and, and sacrosanct. Boy, you start challenging some of those and it doesn't take long 
to find out that, hmm, maybe, you know, maybe the deal that we've been cut into here has been all one-sided. Why, for example, should Christians cheer when poor people are turned away at the borders of the United States? Those are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Most of those are probably baptized Christians. But by saying, no, get out, stay out, you're not welcome here. um, What does that do to the Christian mandate for hospitality? What does that do to the hospitality that Christians owe other members of the body of Christ? Just because they were born on the wrong side of a boundary line, that somehow makes them inferior, that somehow makes them different and undesirable. That's the discourse of mainstream political life, but it ought not be the story that the church tells itself. And yet when you start to act as if that's a better story or a more truthful story, then you start to find out who your friends are and are not in the kind of partnerships or chaplaincy that's defined how the church relates to outside power in places like the United States. Well, you touched on um, the importance of like uh, exemplars of faith. And uh, that that recalled uh, to me a quote uh, from your book, Baptism Beyond Borders, uh, where you're kind of talking about martyrs in that. And you... Uh, you make a you you uh, make a quote from Craig Hovey, um, which he says, um, "After all, the way the church narrates the past is a work of disciplining its tendencies towards self-deception and learning to speak truthfully, especially about those things at which it has failed." Yeah, Craig Hovey's a theologian. He teaches at Ashland University. Uh, he, his, his work's really important in a lot of ways. And I think what he's drawing attention to there is how absolutely crucial the, the Catholicity, small c Catholicity of Christianity really is. The idea that it's in all parts of the world and takes in all peoples and all races and all communities. Christianity absolutely needs that for that for the health of the body of Christ for the health of of believers without that there's no one to provide fraternal correction there's no one to say uh, excuse me uh, you you Christians in Germany have drunk the kool-aid of national socialism too deeply you, you need to repent of that and and, and rethink those allegiances Um. Every country wants to make itself exclusive and wants to claim the allegiances of its people without remainder. And the the transnational reality of the church is is a push against that. It's a structural impediment to that that I think we need to embrace. Um, And so part of what Hovey is saying there is that we we need the church in all different parts of the world to support one another and to call one another out when we've made bad choices, when we've privileged, you know, maybe what's good for, you know, insiders in our own place at the expense of the poor and the vulnerable elsewhere. 
And, you know, I mean, in a sense, that's what, you know, that's what exemplars, you know, do. They, not only do they live lives that you can point to and say, yeah, that's what it sort of looks like if you get some of this Christian stuff right. It also presupposes that there's a community that can recognize that example. And not every community does. Um, You know, there have been lots of examples historically where someone's lived a prophetic life, but it's been one that's been critical of his or her own culture. And they don't recognize that person as saintly or as a moral exemplar, but Christians elsewhere did to the point where, you know, the, the prophet who wasn't accepted in his hometown, the hometown ultimately gets chastised. It says, all right, well, yeah, we, we didn't listen to him or her in their lifetime because they made us uncomfortable, but somebody outside can maybe see more clearly what the circumstance is here. And that would be the case for people like Archbishop Oscar Romero in El Salvador, who was despised by the elite in Salvadoran society, who blocked his formal canonization in the Catholic tradition for years, while the rest of the Catholic world said this was clearly a guy who would be a candidate for sainthood. Similarly, somebody like Franz Jägerstatter in Austria, who refused to serve, was recognized as being an example of the nonviolent sort of vocation of Christianity, but his own church people couldn't stand him. He was an embarrassment to them because you know, all our sons went and fought with the Germans, but Jägerstatter wouldn't. So if we say he's an exemplar, does that mean that we did the wrong thing? Well, I'm, I'm thinking of um, Willie James Jennings' book, uh, After Whiteness, an education in belonging in which he um, talks about the, uh, the problem in theological education uh, is that it has been formed uh, and distorted uh, by the legacy of colonial imperialism and uh, white male supremacy. Uh, and it seems like that, that, that in, in that sense, the, uh, the black church uh, and folks like Willie James Jennings are providing that corrective narrative for us. Anytime you get a chance to listen to Willie Jennings, people should take it. He's, he's worth your time. He, he says things that other people learn from. Um, he's, he's blessed with a dry sense of, sense of humor. Um, the book he wrote before that one called The Christian Imagination goes into detail into the, the, the extent to which white Christianity in, in the modern world was shaped by assumptions about race, about assumptions about cultural superiority that came with colonization, with the European conquest of, of the Americas, of, of African slavery and so on, and how those became not just episodes in history, but they sort of became the, they became the substructure of Christianity as it's proceeded into our day and age. Um, it's uncomfortable reading because it hits so close to home. White Christians don't like to think of themselves as beholden to things that came out of the darker parts of its past. Um, but it's precisely because they're not past that it's all the more important to learn about them, to learn about 
things that are sometimes described in the literature of settler colonialism to get an idea of the extent to which, you know, the, the way Christianity has built itself over the, over the centuries shapes so much of how we live and how we, how we worship today. So I'm a big Willie, Willie, Willie Jennings fan. And uh, I, I think every, I think everybody else should be too. We'll talk a little more then about the understanding uh, kind of connected with uh, the baptism beyond borders and that kind of uh, transnational loyalty uh, of the of the understanding that the church is a polis. Um, in the book, the borders of baptism that you mentioned, um, the idea was basically a kind of an experiment on uh, if being a Christian is in fact the most important thing in in, in people's lives as we affirm our baptismal vows and so on. Uh, what would that look like in everyday, everyday life? How would that shape how the church thinks and moves across a whole range of issues? So I talk about war and peace questions. Um, if you're a just war supporter, for example, what might it mean to uh, consult the church outside one's own country? in trying to discern whether a given proposed conflict meets the requirements of just just war theory. Just something like that. Um, on questions of uh, economics and economic rulemaking, for example, um, what would what would change if the you know discernment of how the church is to present itself, in relation to economic policy or the objectives of one country acting through, say, multilateral institutions like the World Bank, um, how would that change if the if the dialogue partners for Christians are not just politicians and economists in their own country, but those coming from places that are going to be most deeply affected by the kind of economic rules made? Why, while you're talking about economics, let me let me connect that with a quote that you made in uh, corporate or Christianity Incorporated, where it says the point is not to design a more moral polity or economy for everyone else. Another version of the Constantinian tem- temptation, a false obligation laid upon the church, but to demonstrate to everyone else what lives dedicated to the kingdom of God might look like in our world. I think part of where. Christians kind of get in their own way or they trip over themselves is in assuming that it's our responsibility to come up with some, you know, more ethical or moral sort of framework that will apply to absolutely everybody else in the world. No religious convictions of those of other traditions, people who are hostile to matters religious or spiritual, that it's our job to come up with a one size fits all kind of a solution. I don't think that's what Jesus called the 12 to do. I don't think that's what the early followers of the church saw themselves as doing. I think what they were supposed to do was to show the world what it's like to be a new people, not formed by nation, not formed by kind of other sorts of loyalties or considerations. But in fact, we're supposed to show people what it's like to try to build mutuality, build a community 
without violence, without coercion, and so on. And just to say, hey, take a look at this. Maybe, maybe this is a picture of something you might find beautiful or intriguing or attractive in some way. Um, whether you want to think of the church as being a demonstration plot, you know, kind of like an experiment in human community without the killing and the violence as a taste of what the kingdom is going to be and is meant to be for all of creation. I think there are worse, there are worse sort of visuals than that, but it's clearly not, you know, to seize the reins of power in some kind of a restorationist fantasy and impose theocracy. That's exactly the wrong thing. That's, that would be that would be worse than the present circumstance. Well, you've been in on the ground floor of the development of the Ecclesia project. Um, how does that fit into uh, your concerns, and how does that facilitate uh, what you advocate? The Ecclesia project was a. Uh, group that came together in 1999 um, from a variety of different Christian traditions in the United States. Uh, some of the people knew each other, some did not. Uh, but there was a kind of a shared conviction that, you know, the church was called to be more than what it had become at that point. Uh, and here we're talking within the confines of the white church. And, um, there was a, you know, it, it was an attempt to try to articulate a better sense of what it might mean to be church in this time and place that actually took being a Christian as the, the starting point rather than allegiances, political or economic or um, other kinds of, of, of priorities. And so, you know, it became, you know, it, it evolved over the years to being a place where you could talk openly about, you know, are there conflicts between being a Christian and being a good, a good citizen? Uh, how do you, how do you deal with the reality of race as a structure of structural feature of Christianity in places like the United States? Um, and, and, and still try to push the church toward a posture of repentance and starting over. Um, it also became a fun place. It was a place where people could go and find others like them who say, well, maybe, you know, I might be crazy, but I'm not the only one who's crazy. <laughs> and some of these crazy people are doing really good things in the world. They, they have congregations that are alive and that are taking chances and that are in some cases, even willing to sort of make sacrifices to try to live a, a more holistic sense of being a, a disciple of Jesus. Um, it means that you learn from traditions you hadn't experienced before. You know, having Anabaptists sitting next to high church Anglicans, you know, having Pentecostals, you know, talking to people who know Augustine and Aquinas and folks like that. Um, it was never an attempt to sort of create a parachurch organization or an alternative to existing congregations. The, the focus was how do we encourage people in the congregations they inhabit to to go deeper to go broader and to find some of the the notion of church that is more comfortable 
being an, un, an uncomfortable presence in a world where the rich and the powerful set all the all the all the rules, and up until recently, the church has kind of been okay with that. Well, you have a new book coming out. I do. And uh, uh, foolishness to the Gentiles. Yeah, it's a collection of stuff I've written over about the last 10 years. So it kind of ranges widely. Uh, there's, there's stuff in there about the uh, reality of climate collapse and what that might mean for the churches and, you know, life in a dying empire, which I think the United States is, and why it's important that the church not go down with the ship, because I think that Politics is going to become increasingly desperate and violent in the years ahead. And unless the church finds a way to distance and, and denounce that sort of thing, it's going to become as big a historical scandal as things we are now embarrassed by in previous generations, whether that's the Inquisition or the Crusades or things like that. And then, you know, talking, a lot of these essays came at in response to invitations from churches in the so-called global south. I'm part of a research institute at DePaul University where I work that uh, explores Christianity um, primarily but not exclusively a Catholic tradition in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. So, you know, a lot of the talks that became those, this, this book came in consultation and dialogue with people in Brazil, the Philippines, Africa, and so on. But you kind of give a, a foreshadowing of the of the violence to come by making reference to the uh, uh, end of Trump era and the uh, storming of the Capitol. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't write this book in response to Trump. Nobody could do that, and I didn't want to because it would mean I'd have to start over at any time he sent out some new, strange, or bizarre tweet on one thing or another. Um, but in a lot of ways, I think Trump is in many cases, you know, he's the exemplar of, you know, American culture and, and American politics taken to its logical, its logical con conclusion. He, he may be the most American of American presidents we've ever had. He wants everything. He wants it all. He wants it now. He's going to steamroller anybody he thinks will stand in his way. Um, and so you can't focus on Trump as an individual, but you rather you have to you know look at this at the system and at the the culture that made Trump possible. Um, whether that's the you know seventy to eighty percent of white Christians that voted for him depending whose numbers you look at, um, whether it's the, you know, the kind of the, the two, the two party system, which, you know, if it ever represents other, anything other than competing elite interest does nothing but that now. So, you know, Trump, Trump's not really a major, a major interlocutor in what I do, because I think he's just the most extreme kind of a example of dynamics that go a lot deeper than him, about which he's absolutely clueless. But is signs of what is to come, 
Yeah, you know, um, one of the one of the things that's held Western societies together over the last five hundred years was the assumption that economic growth was in principle limitless. Oh, you might have shortages of raw materials of this nature or that nature, but you could always substitute something else or there'd be a technological innovation that would come and change the setup. But that in principle, you could always get more stuff, more goods, more services without without limitation. That's never been true biophysically. That's never been true in an ecological sense because all that stuff runs up against the absorptive limits of the planet. Anytime there's economic activity, there's, you know, a byproduct that used to be called just heat. It's stuff that's not transformed into something useful. It's just kind of the entropy of the system. Um, we see that now expressing itself in the form of climate change. You know, the, the American West is on fire. There's no water. That's not going away. Um, but the politics will get much uglier once the assumption about economic growth becomes changed. You could always buy off poor people. You could always buy off discontent in politics by saying, okay, well, you know, we'll increase the size of the pie so your, so your share can get a little bigger. That allowed for some, you know, some concessions to the poor or the people out of power without taking anything from the rich. When you get rid of the assumption that growth is limitless, then politics becomes redistributive. That means for somebody on the bottom to get better, somebody at the top has to give up something. And institutions at the top never give up anything. They've all, they're, they're already fighting to entrench themselves when, when, when and if there's ever a recognition that the game's been rigged by this lie of limitless economic growth, then I think politics will become more transparently authoritarian, more transparently repressive because, you know, you can't just say, well, there'll be a new innovation that will allow more guns and butter. You know, you'll be able to have you know, more prosperity and poor people can have cleaner air and cleaner water without being a trade-off somewhere else. It doesn't work that way. Well, that sounds um, quite similar to uh, Herman Daly and the steady state economics. Do you have any connection with that? I have learned a lot from Herman Daly. Uh, Herman Daly, Nicholas Georgeski Rogan, who was an economist at Vanderbilt that Daly was in, that was an influence of dailies were really important in how I think about these kind of things. Um, I think daily took a, sl- a little different trajectory later in his career when he started working with John Cobb um, and became an official at the world bank, but steady state economic stuff fits with the science that we understand uh, that you can't have, you can't have limitless economic expansion on a planet that has an atmosphere. It's, that's always been the limiting factor, even if we haven't been willing to acknowledge it. So yeah, no, Herman Daly uh, has been really important in, in that regard for me. There's a political scientist named William Ophuls who wrote a book called e- Ecology and the Politics of Scarcity. Uh, 
He wrote that book in the late 70s. And he was, I think, so depressed by his own conclusions that he quit the scholarly life and went into a, a Buddhist monastery. Um, I think he just, you know, the, the implications were, were, so, were so grim that he said, forget it. Christians don't have to do that. We have other resources. We have a God who says that that's not the last word. We have a community that says lost causes are no reason to give up because, you know, we've, we've been part of a lost cause that wins in the big picture. And so the, the resources are different for us if we're just aware of them and, and cultivate them among one another. Well, our time is up. And I am deeply grateful for you. I'm grateful for the work that you do. Uh, you have this ability to provide a mirror for us to help us see ourselves better, uh, but also um, a guidance uh, for us as Christians uh, to be able to uh, negotiate these times in a more faithful way. Uh, and so I'm thankful. Uh, for that, and I'm thankful that you've been with me today. Thank you, David. Been my been my pleasure. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called "Father, Let Your Kingdom Come," that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project's Work Song album, and is used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace. Yeah.